happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter, man. It is so good to see you guys here on Easter Sunday as we celebrate together. And uh, let me just say that if you're a guest with us this morning here at Grace Church, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we count it an absolute privilege that you would be with us and join us this morning um, as we celebrate Easter. And so today, um, not only are we gathering to celebrate Easter, but we're also excited uh, because we are beginning a brand new series here this morning. Uh, a series, as you can probably already tell, is called This is Grace. And as you can probably tell from the series, the topic that we're going to be engaging in for the next six weeks together um, as we uh, jump into this series is the topic of grace. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to be talking about. And the reason we're doing this, quite frankly, this whole series, is because we believe that grace is really, really, really important. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but, uh, but our name is Grace Church. And, uh, and so if you're not familiar with us, we are, uh, we are actually one of four campuses of Grace Church around the greater Akron area. But Grace is so important to us that we named our church after it. And so it's not just the name of our church, but it's also our, the central message that we believe here at Grace Church. It is our heartbeat at Grace Church. And this is the thing that we get all jacked up about is the grace of God. And we also believe that grace is really at the epicenter of what, the, of what we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is all about. Grace is really, really important. In fact, it's so important. Uh, over 50 years ago, there was a British conference that was held, and they had a, a group of religious experts come together, and they gathered to discuss and debate the topic, what characteristic, if any, distinguishes Christianity from any other belief system? And so a group of experts got together from all around the world. They discussed and debated for several hours without any conclusion. And the story goes that a, a man named C.S. Lewis, some of you may have heard of him. He's an author, an apologist. He was an Oxford professor. He meandered into that meeting and he said, what are you guys talking about? And they said, oh, we're, we're trying to figure out what sets apart Christianity. If, it, if there's any characteristics, what sets apart Christianity from any other belief system? And C.S. Lewis just said, oh, that's easy. That's easy. And he just said, it's grace. It's grace. And, and uh, after he left the room, there was some more deliberation, and the experts had to agree. They said, you know, that's it. If, if there's one thing that sets Jesus Christ apart from any other major belief system, if there's one thing that's central to understanding Jesus, it's grace. It's all about grace. And so we think it's really, really, really important. And because of that, that begs an important question, right? And the question, quite simply, is, is this. Well, then what is it? If it's that important, then what is grace exactly? And when we're talking about grace, what do we mean uh, when, we're, when we're having this discussion about grace? And that, by the way, is the question that we want to investigate together for the next six weeks as we kind of discuss through this series the topic of grace. We want to discuss the question, what is grace? What is grace exactly? Now, my guess is that, that you probably have a response in your mind of how you would answer that question. But what I, what I want to submit to you is that... Um, is that the answer to that question is probably far more complicated than we tend to give it credit for, at least at surface value. That the answer is more complicated than that. That is to say, if you were just to give me a definition of grace, right, if you were just to give me a definition, you know and I know that that doesn't go nearly far enough to express the full magnitude of grace, right? So, for example, I could give you a definition. I could put it up on the PowerPoint screen today. I could say, here's what grace is, and I could give you, like, you know, some uh, dictionary.com definition of what grace is. And, and then I could say, okay, that's grace. We answer the question. Let's pray and go home, and uh, you guys can go have your Easter dinner. And quite honestly, some of you would like that. You'd be like, man, sweet church is short today. That's awesome, right? And I could do that, but you know that that wouldn't be satisfactory because to simply give a definition does not express the full experience of something. Now, let me just put it this way. 
uh, just for the sake of illustration. Let, let me show you something real quick here on the screen. Let me show you this. And let me just ask you a very obvious question. You don't have to answer out loud, all right? But I just want you to answer this question. What is that? What is that? What are you looking at? Well, someone did answer out loud. It is, if you answered the Grand Canyon, if that's what you said, you're right to an extent, right? And without getting too technical and without being too obvious and insulting your intelligence, that's not actually the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you knew that. But that's not, what we're actually, in actuality, what we're looking at is we are looking at light and color portrayed on a screen in such a manner that it looks like the Grand Canyon. But that's not the Grand Canyon, right? You're like, well, yeah, duh, you know? That's not the Grand Canyon. But if you have ever been to the Grand Canyon, if you've ever experienced the Grand Canyon, you know that this doesn't even do near justice to the experience of being at the Grand Canyon, right? Or I could give you, for example, a definition of the Grand Canyon. In fact, I found one on dictionary.com. Here's the definition of the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon, it's a noun, by the way. It is a gorge of the Colorado River in North Arizona, over 200 miles long and one mile deep. Now, is that accurate? Well, sure, right? That's the definition. That's what the Grand Canyon is. But you know this, right? That, that a definition says nothing about the experience. And if any of you have been to the Grand Canyon, if you've actually encountered it, and I asked you, tell me about the Grand Canyon, you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to go, well, it's a noun. And uh, it's in North Arizona, 200. You're not going to give it. You're going to tell me about an experience, what you're going to do. You're going to say stuff like this, man, it is mind-blowing. And you go to the Grand Canyon and you stand on the edge and it is dizzying and it is disorienting, right? Some of you might even say it's awe-inspiring because you're confronted with your own smallness in the midst of such immense magnitude and immensity. You would describe an experience and you know as well as I do that a, that a representation or a definition does not say, doesn't go far enough to express the experience. Same could be true of a baby, right? I could give you a definition of a baby. I could make up a definition right now, right? Small human, um, cute, tiny hands, right? I could give you a definition of a baby, but, but you know that a definition doesn't go nearly far enough to express the experience of having a baby. You talk to a new mom who's just went through the birthing process. She's not going to give you some textbook definition if you ask her about a baby, right? You go to a new dad who is terrified outside of his wits, right? He's not going to give you some textbook definition of a baby. You talk to new grandparents who are full of joy and all at the same time full of justice because they know now that their children will experience the same treatment that they got from them, right? You talk to grandparents about that, and they're not going to give you some textbook definition, man. They're going to give you an experience. They're going to say things like this. They're going to say, oh, my gosh, it's the most exhilarating and exhausting thing you could imagine. They're going to say it's the most beautiful miracle that life has a, you're, you're going to hear him say stuff like this. I didn't know I was capable of loving someone as much as I do my child. You're going to hear that. You're going to hear, man, it is, it's incredible and it's stinky. Right? You're, going to hear, you're going to hear the whole thing because they're, they're, they're not just giving you a definition. They're not just giving you some kind of fabrication. They're telling you about a real thing that they've experienced. Now, why do I say that? Well, because you guys, I believe that as it relates to grace, Sometimes we can encounter it in those ways. Sometimes we interact with it in those ways. And so for some of you, if I say, what is grace? You might be able to give me a definition. Many of you might be able to give me a definition. You could say, oh, it's, it's uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. Right? That's a famous one. Or you might hear people say, oh, it's uh, God's unmerited favor. That's what grace is. And is that right? Well, sure, that's right. But you know and I know a definition doesn't go nearly far enough 
to describe the experience of something. You may have a great representation of grace. Maybe you heard a good sermon about it one time, or maybe you read an awesome book about the grace of God, and it was spellbinding and riveting. But the real question that I want to ask in this series we want to investigate together is, have you experienced it? Not do you know about the grace of God, but do you know the grace of God? Has it, has it exploded in your life? Because at Grace Church, this is the thing we're jacked up about. This is the thing that we believe every person needs more than they even know. Is a real, not to know about grace, but to have an encounter with the grace of God. And so that's what we want to do for the rest of the series. For the next six weeks, what we want to do is we want to talk about this idea, this concept of grace. And, and here's the real thing, okay? The, the one big idea that we want to unpack for the next six weeks as we have this conversation and investigation about grace is quite simply this. This is the big idea for the whole series. Each week, we're going to be unpacking this idea, and that's this. That grace is not a concept to be understood, but it is a reality to be experienced, Grace is not simply a concept to be understood. When we're talking about grace, we're not just talking about some abstract, theological, doctrinal thing, okay? We're talking about a reality to be experienced. And that's what we want to unpack for the next six weeks as we investigate this together. Now, as you can imagine, because uh, we are going to be teaching through this series, this makes this a very complicated series to move through. Because I just told you that we don't think grace is a concept to understand. And so any, any attempt on my part to give you a definition or to give you an explanation of grace is going to fall flat to describe the experience of grace. And so rather than giving you definitions and explanations in this series, what I really want to do is I want to talk about six indications. Each week we'll, we'll look at a different one. Six indications that you've experienced grace. My hope is just to talk a little bit about the experience and my hope is that as we talk about those six indications that you've experienced grace, that it will help you to determine whether or not you've actually encountered it or not. Whether or not you actually know it, not just know it, but know it, right? And my hope is as well is that as we talk about this, that maybe it will point you in the direction of where you can find grace and how you can experience it. And that's my hope with God's help for the next six weeks as we go through this series. Now, before we get into the first indication for today, let me just say one other thing. If you're a person who's here this morning, and maybe for you, you know, you're just not, you're just, this might be the, the, the one time a year or the two times you go to church or whatever. Or maybe today you just don't go to church and, and someone drug you here or invited you here. Or your parents drug you here, your girlfriend or boyfriend drug you here, whatever it is. And you're here today and you're like, you know, I'll just be honest with you. I don't know what I believe. I'm not sure if I buy the whole Jesus thing. I don't know if I believe the whole God thing. Okay, if that's you and you're a person who's investigating Jesus, let me just tell you, I think this series is actually just for you too. I mean, it is really important for you because if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, quite honestly, the best place to start is with grace. Because if grace is the distinguishing feature that sets Jesus Christ apart from any other belief system, then what a great place to start. And so I would encourage you that in this series, maybe you just lock in for the next six weeks as we talk about this idea of what is grace and this is grace. So today, I want to talk, spend the rest of our time talking about the first indication. How do you know you've experienced grace? How do you know? How do you know? First indication, here it is. The first indication is this. You know you've experienced grace when you're disturbed by grace. You know you've experienced grace when you are disturbed by grace. That might sound kind of weird. So you're like, can you explain that? Well, I'll try. All right? And the way I want to try today is I actually want to take you to a passage of the Bible that I believe does a phenomenal job of highlighting the disturbing nature 
of grace. Okay, so if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to take them with me. We're going to go to Luke 15 this morning. Okay, Luke chapter 15. So grab your Bibles and, uh, and head there with me, Luke 15, if you can. I'll also just tell you that uh, if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's completely okay. Uh, we actually have some available for you. They should be in the chairs or in front of you or under your seats. You might want to grab those. Hopefully there's one nearby and you can grab one. In our Bibles, page 730 is where you're going to want to flip, page 730. And let me also say that if you don't own a Bible, if you just flat out don't have one, or if you don't own a newer translation of the Bible, like maybe you have an older Bible that belonged to your grandma or something, it doesn't make a lot of sense to you, would you just do me a favor? Would you just take one of ours? Okay, make it a gift from us to you. We think it's so, so important that you have a Bible. Okay, so you can grab one of those and turn to page 730, Luke 15. Okay, now as you're flipping to Luke chapter 15, let me just give you a little context before we jump into the story that we're about to read. So Luke 15 contains within it one of the most famous parables or stories that Jesus ever gave. And we're going to read that here, but I want you to understand the context in which Jesus told this story. Okay, so we are told earlier in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus tells this parable to a very diverse audience. So in spe specifically speaking, um, the audience was comprised of two different people groups, two vastly different people groups. On one side of the room, uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus had the sinners and the tax collectors. Okay, now I don't know why you guys represent them today. Sorry about that, no offense. All right? But the sinners and the tax collectors were on one side of the room. And the sinners and the tax collectors, by the way, whenever you read the Bible, that refers to the people who were ostracized by the religious community. Now, those were the men and women who were known for breaking God's laws. They were, known for, um, they were known for doing immoral things. Hence, their names, sinners and tax collectors. They're known to be thieves. So one part of the room was that. The other part of the room, the Bible tells us, was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I don't know why you represent them, and I'm sorry about that too. And, uh, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, some of you might know this, these guys were the guys who were known for being the most disciplined, the most righteous people in the community. Okay. Outwardly, they were perfect. They did not disobey the law. They were super, super, super disciplined. They had the entire Old Testament memorized. Okay? And this group of people would ostracize this group of people. And this group of people hated this group of people. And it's in the midst of this audience, this very diverse audience, that Jesus is going to give a parable. And I want you to know before we even get in, that the story that Jesus is about to tell would have been absolutely disturbing to everybody in the audience, every person represented. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So we'll pick it up in verse 11. Once again, one of the most famous stories Jesus tells, the parable of the prodigal son. Let's start off in verse 11. So Jesus is talking, says, he tells this story. There was a man who had two sons and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. All right, let's just hit pause there for a minute. Let me explain a little bit. So, um, so the Bible tells us Jesus starts the story. He says, once upon a time, uh, to this very diverse audience, he goes, once upon a time, guys, there was a father. And this father had two sons. The younger son came up to him one day and he said, Dad, I want my inheritance. Give me my share of the estate. Now, you need to remember the context, too, because Jesus is speaking at this time to a first-century Jewish audience, and so we can safely assume that the customs of Palestinian culture were in view here. And one of the things you've got to know about this culture is that it was a very shame-honor-based society. It was one in which you honored your elders, and if you didn't do that, it was shameful to do so, and especially elderly men. It was a patriarchal society. And so this shame-honor was, was a big deal. So for the son... To go to his father and tell him, I want my inheritance, would have been a very offensive, 
a very shameless, a very disrespectful thing to do. Back in this time, the only way that you would get your inheritance is if your father died. And so for the son to go up to his dad and say, Dad, I want my inheritance now, was basically the same as his saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my stuff. I don't, want, I don't want you. I want your stuff. And so I'm cashing out and I'm getting out of here. It was a very shameless request, a very offensive and disrespectful thing, and a huge disrespectful thing, especially in the midst of this culture that was kind of a shame-honor-based culture. Jesus' audience would have known that, right? So everyone would have heard that and been like, ooh, dude, you don't do that. Everyone knows you don't do that, right? And so then Jesus goes on. He continues to tell the story. He talks about how this shameless request now results in a shameless rebellion. Look at verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got all, all together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. And so Jesus goes on. He says, this guy's shameless request turned to a shameless rebellion. He took all of his father's inheritance that he got, and he went to a distant country, which meant he got as far away from his father as possible. He's like, I'm getting out of here. Took his money, and what did he do with his money? The Bible tells us he squandered it. He squandered didn't invest it, didn't spend it wisely. He, he blew it, threw it away. And on what? The Bible tells us on wild living. So you guys can just imagine, right? His money goes to... His money goes to the parties and to his friends and to the girls and to the stuff until eventually the Bible says he runs out of money. So watch what happens here in verse 14. After he'd spent everything, so he's got not a penny to his name, after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So Jesus says, so this son, shameless request, very, very shameless, offensive, takes his money, goes out, shameless rebellion, spends it on wild living, squanders it, and now he finds himself in a shameful circumstance. He's out of money. There's a famine in the land. He's, he has nowhere to go. So the Bible says that he is forced to hire himself out, and it tells us that he hires himself out to none other than a pig farmer. Now, if you guys know anything about Jewish culture, and it's still this way in Judaism, pigs were considered the most unclean animal. They were not kosher. You can't eat pig, and you can't even associate with pigs because they're that filthy. They're unclean. So in Jesus' audience, you got to remember, they would have been like, oh, that's so gross, pigs. Right? So let's just practice. I'm going to read that again, and I want you guys to give me their response, all right, of how they might respond. When I, so here's verse 15. When he, when he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him out in the fields to feed the pigs... I know, right? And then and not only, but check this out. Not only did he go feed the pigs, we're told he longed to eat with the pigs. Check this out. I know. <laughs> Look at verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so what is this, guys? This is a, what this is, this is a picture of rock bottom. That's what this is. Okay, this is a picture of a descending rebellious act until eventually this guy hits rock bottom. It's a shameless request, offensive, disrespectful. Everyone would have been like, oh, you don't do that. Then he goes out, shameless rebellion, blows his money, doesn't have a penny to show. And now he's forced to eat with the pigs. It is the rock bottom situation that he's in. And then check this out. Verse 17 is going to be the turning point of the story. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, the Bible says, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, and I'm starving to death. Now, that's a really fascinating thing the Bible says. I just want to just highlight that for a minute. Notice the Bible says he came to his senses. 
That's a very interesting word. You know, in the Greek, that word literally means he repented. And, and repentance, I know that sounds like a churchy word, but what it literally means, repentance just means this. It means I was going in this direction and now I'm turning and I'm going in this direction. Repent means turn, means to do a 180. And so this is literally at the turning point in the story. This is the moment that this guy has a wake-up call, come to his senses, what was I doing type of situation. And he repents the Bible. This is a change of heart, a change of mind, right? This is that wake-up call moment. He's like, how did I get here? I'm, I'm with the pigs, and my goodness, what am I doing? He came to his senses. Some of you maybe have had a wake-up call moment like this before, right? This is the moment when you wake up and you're hungover, and you don't know who the person next to you is. And you're like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? What am I doing? How did I get here, right? This is the moment when you realize that the decisions you've been making or the addiction that you have is gonna cost you your marriage or it's gonna cost you your, your family or it's gonna cost you your health. And you go, man, oh my gosh, coming to my senses, what was I thinking? This is the moment when a lot of your poor financial decisions catch up to you and you get that credit card bill. And you're like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? What was I thinking? What was I doing? This is the moment that you realize you're at Waffle House. Because no one plans to go to Waffle House. You know, no one's like, like oh, let's go to Waffle House. No, you're always like, how did I get here? You know, and why are we at Waffle House? And so this is his moment. He's like, how did I get here with the, why am I at Waffle House? And the Bible says that he comes to his senses, right? Comes to his senses. And notice when he comes to his senses, what's he do? He immediately starts thinking about his father. And he says, man, back at my dad's house, even the servants, the slaves, they eat better than I do. Even they eat better than I do. So he has a wake-up call. And then he starts to develop and concoct a plan. I want you to notice his plan in verse 18. It says, I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, sin against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like the one who is high, one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. So the, Jesus tells us that the son comes to his sentence, uh, senses. He has this wake up call moment. And he's like, man, I gotta do something different. So he makes a plan. It's like, here's what I'm gonna do. I'll go back, I'll go back home. As shameful as it is, I'll go back home. He's like, and I'll plead with my father. I'll say, dad, I have no right to be your son. You have every right to disenfranchise me from the family, to punish me, to even throw me in jail. Back in this culture, that would have been totally acceptable. And he's like, but maybe, maybe, maybe my father will be merciful and he'll let me be a slave in his household. Maybe he'll let me be a servant. Maybe, maybe. And so he begins to recite and rehearse a speech and he begins to go back to the father. Now, before we go to the next part of the story, and many of you know how this goes, I want you just to pause for a minute, if you will, and I want you just to think about the audience again. And I want you to imagine how they were hearing this. Okay, so like I already said, this audience was a first century Palestinian audience, a very shame, honor-based society. And they would have been expecting a certain conclusion. And my guess is that for everyone in the audience, they would have been expecting that if the father was merciful, at best he would let his son come back and he would let him be a slave at best. At worst, he might throw him in jail and have him punished 
for what he has done, for the disrespectful act that he did, that would be at the worst. At best, his father might let him be a slave. And so my guess is that at this point in, in the audience, everyone is on the edge of their seat, and for different reasons. The sinners and the tax collectors, imagine how they were hearing this. They probably were thinking to themselves, oh man, that's me. I'm the older son. I've done disrespectful things. I've done shameful things. And they were probably on the edge of their seat because they were probably thinking, I wonder what Jesus has to say about me. I wonder what he has to say about God's love for me. But then you remember the other side of the room. You had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I mean, these guys were disciplined, right? They were righteous in their own eyes. And my guess is that they were probably on the edge of their seat too. And they, my guess is, and I'm just guessing, that maybe they were thinking this. Maybe they were thinking, ah, I see what you're doing, Jesus. Because we know they're in the room. You get them, Jesus. You tell them, right? I'm guessing that's probably what they were thinking. And so they're on the edge of their chair. And what Jesus is about to say would have been shocking, scandalous, and disturbing to every person who was in the audience. Watch what Jesus says. Check out verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. Let me ask you a question. How did the father see him when he was a long way off? Oh, he was looking for him. Oh, he was looking for him. Probably every day he was waiting for this to happen. He saw his son when he was still a long way off. He was filled with compassion. Look at this. And it says, this next part, it says, so he ran to his son. He ran. And when he got there, what did he do? He punched him, right? (laughs) Slapped him. Roundhouse kicked him to the face. That's what he did, right? No, 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 no. Look at this. He assaulted him, yes. But look, with hugs and kisses, he hugged his son, he kissed his son, and he embraced him in this way. Jesus says when he was a far way off, the father ran to him, tackled him, hugged, and he kissed him. And I'm just telling you guys, everyone in the audience who heard that would have been absolutely shocked because no one saw that coming, nobody. In fact, you know, the crazy thing and the sad thing about this passage is that the absurdity of what Jesus just said right there gets lost in cultural translation. We read that and we think, oh, that's neat. But I'm telling you, you don't understand the full weight of it. Because back in this culture, one of the things that we we learn is that um, noblemen and prestigious uh, patriarchs in society, like this man would have been, they did not run. They do not. It was completely outside of social bounds for elderly men, for noble men, for the patriarchs of society to run. They don't do it. Back in that time, children ran, young men ran in competitions. But older men, older noble men, patriarchs of society, they did not run. In fact, it was such a serious thing. There was actually Jewish laws against men, noble men in the the society running. There was laws against it because it would have been considered so far outside of the social bounds. It would have been considered disrespectful if that was to happen. Just to emphasize to you how serious this was, let me read to you from Kenneth, uh, a guy named Kenneth Bailey. He's a scholar of uh, Middle Eastern history. This is what he says. He says, one of the main reasons why Middle Eastern noblemen of rank did not run is that traditionally they would have worn long robes. So these men would have worn long robes. And robes, by the way, were a symbol of honor. And their robes would have went all the way down to the ground. Then listen to this. It says, no one can run with a long robe without taking it up into his hands. And when this occurs, the legs are exposed, which was considered a form of nudity. It would have been humiliating for this to happen. Exposure of the legs would have been considered shameful. The robes themselves reached the ground to make sure this didn't happen. 
Because this was a huge deal. For, for a nobleman to run, it would have been embarrassing. It would have been outside of the social norm. It would have been shameful for them to do this. Unbelievable. And uh, a couple years ago, I was teaching on this passage. And uh, to try to give a good visual, I, 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 I used a Snuggie. And uh, so today, I thought I'd do it again. So I brought, I brought my Ohio State Snuggie, which is helpful. So remember, we said that the robe is representative of honor. And so this makes sense, right? Ohio State. So, all right, so check this out. All right, so this would have been what it was like. I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. <laughs> my, my people. <laughs> so, awesome. All right, so, uh, so maybe not exactly like this, but you can just imagine. So this is the picture Jesus gives. He says the son comes home, and what does he do? The Bible says that he sees his son when he's a, a long way off, and then he runs to the son. Now, in order for me to run in the Snuggie, it requires that I have to gird up my Snuggie Put it up here, exposing my legs so that I could run to the sun, okay? And that is the picture that Jesus gives. And not only does the father run, but the Bible tells us the word that's used for run is actually the same word that's used for a competitive running in, um, in the Colosseum. It was sprinting. So Jesus says the father, I'm going to take this off now. The, father said, the Bible says that the father, when he saw the son, he girded up his honor. He girded up his dignity. He exposed his shame. And then he ran to the sun. And when he got to the sun, what did he do? The Bible says that he hugged him and he kissed him. But again, the Greek, the word is he literally fell on his neck. He tackled him. And this was a full body check. I don't know if you guys have ever um, greeted someone with that kind of enthusiasm before. I never have. But this is the father running to his son. He tackles him and he kisses him. But then he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. Check out verse 21. I think this is kind of funny, by the way. Check this out. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I find that so humorous that in the midst of this assault attack from his father, he tries to rehearse his speech. He's like, Dad, I'm sorry. I, you know, I sinned against heaven and against you. And then watch the father's response, verse, 20, verse 22. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For the son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. And I love that because the son tries to give his speech, and the father won't even let him. The father doesn't even acknowledge it. He's like, Dad, Dad, I'm sorry. And, and the father just goes, right now, servants, right now, robe, ring, you know, steak. Get the DJ out here, spin something funky. We're having a party, right? And, and he won't even acknowledge the son's speech. And look, you guys, some of you guys know this, that all of this is very symbolic. For the father to put his robe on his son, that would have been a sign of covering his son's filth with his own identity. To give his son his ring, that would have been a symbol of, buddy, you're back in the family. This is the family ring. Everything that I have is yours. And to invite him back in the house to have a party, this would have been a sign of the celebration and the love that the father had for the son. And I'm just telling you guys, everyone in the audience who heard this would have been shocked. This would have been scandalous. This would have been absolutely absurd, even disturbing, for them to hear about this lavish grace that the father has showed to his son. Now, so at this point, some of you guys might be thinking right now, you might be thinking, man, that's really neat. That's kind of a cool story. I never heard it like that before. But you're probably thinking, so what exactly does that have to do with Easter, though? And if that's what you're thinking, let me just say, I think that this passage has everything to do with Easter. Everything. 
You know, I, I believe that when Jesus gave parables and stories, he didn't just give parables and stories for entertainment value. That's not why he did it. He didn't just tell these stories for shock value. He was trying to make a profound point about himself and about his father. And so when Jesus tells us this story, I think he is making a very loud proclamation about the father in heaven and about himself. And I think it has everything to do with Easter. You're like, how so? Well, let me show you. If you haven't made the connection, some of you are already starting to make connections. Let me just make some for us. Verse 20, I want you to look at it again. Just look at it again. Verse 20, notice it says, but when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was full of compassion. He ran to him. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. Notice, when he was still a long way off, the son was still a long way off. Do you guys know what the Bible says about you and I and our interaction with Jesus? The Bible says this. It says that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that while we were still a long way off, that he came to us. That that's the story of Christ. That's the story. You guys, this is what makes grace so amazing. Because grace, the one thing that sets uh, Jesus Christ apart from every other belief system is that Jesus Christ worked his way to us. It's not like we have to work our way to God. No, you gotta clean yourself up and get yourself tidy. And if you just get your life straight, then you can come back and be with God. God's like, no, I'm coming to you. I'm, I'm running to you while you're still a long way off. The moment you repent, I'm coming to you. And the Bible shows us that. You guys, we see it here while we are still a long way off. But it doesn't stop there. Because look what it says again in the next part, verse 20. While he was still laying off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. It's filled with compassion. You guys, this run that the father took was not a run that was motivated by judgment. It was not a, a run that was motivated by wrath or motivated by justice. It was a run that was motivated by love and compassion. And he ran to us, but not to judge us, but to, to accept us and to save us. You guys know what John 3.17 says? It says, for God did not send his son into the world to, to judge the world or condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He ran to us. He spanned the universe in the same way that this father spanned the field. And he came to us out of a heart of compassion while we were still far way off. Then you guys, the most scandalous part right there. He ran to his son. He ran to his son. He girded up his honor. He exposed his shame. He humiliated himself, embarrassed himself for, out of love for his son. You guys, let me ask you a question. When did God, when did God shame himself? When did God humiliate himself? When, when did God gird up his honor and expose his shame because of his love for us? When did he do that? Man, on the cross, on the cross, the Bible says that he endured shame, that he, was, that he was criticized, that he was mocked, that he was beaten, that he was crucified. And rather than taking retribu retribution in that moment, he endured it for our sake. He humiliated himself. The God of the universe humbled himself for our sake. And not only did he shame himself, the Bible tells us that he took on our shame. Do you guys ever think about that? For the son to go back to the father, in order for him to do that, that would have meant that he would have had to walk through the town that he grew up in. That would be the most serious walk of shame of all time. Because he'd be walking through that town and everyone would have known him and they would have publicly criticized him and scorned him. Everyone would have been like, what's he doing here? He has no right to come back. Who does he think he is? 
But do you notice that the father won't even let his son take that walk? The father takes it for him. Did you notice that? The Bible says that the father is the one who ashamed himself, embarrassed himself, and he took that walk for his son. And everyone who was watching would have been more shocked by the father's shamelessness than they would have been by the son's shame. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ has done all of that for us. But not only did he do that, the Bible says he went further than that. Because look at this next part, once again, in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he was found. So they began to celebrate. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, because he resurrected from the dead, which is what we celebrate today, that he didn't just give us forgiveness of sins, but he has now invited us to be inheritance in his kingdom. That he now, for those of us who believe in him, he clothes us in his righteousness. He covers our sin with his glory. He gives us his identity. He puts, a, puts his ring on our finger. He calls us sons and daughters of God. Jesus gives us his inheritance, and we have a hope now that is eternal. First Peter puts it this way. I'll just point it out to you. In First Peter chapter 3, in his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven. See, the Bible tells us, you guys, that when we put our faith in Christ, when we believe in the sacrifice that he humiliated himself for our sake, that he invites us in. And we get to be heirs with him in his kingdom. And you guys, that's Easter. You guys, that's grace. And it's scandalous. And it's disturbing. And it's amazing. And it's troubling. I believe, honestly, you guys, if, if you have never been blown away, blown away by the grace of God, if, if you have never encountered the grace of God and it's caused you to scratch your head and go, how is that even possible? If you've never been even, I would even say disturbed by it. If you've never been shocked by the grace of God, I would submit to you that it is very possible that you have never experienced it. You might know about grace. You may have even grown up in the church. You may have sermons and songs about grace. You may even sing Amazing Grace, right? But if, you, if it doesn't disturb you, if it's like, oh yeah, the grace of God, you know, business as usual. If it don't surprise you, if it don't shock you, if it don't disturb you, you probably haven't experienced it. Because I'm telling you to this day, whenever we talk about the grace of God, I am perplexed because it is unreal. See, in this passage, when we read it, the audience, they would, have been, they would have been blown away. They would have been offended, some of them. Some of them would have been angry, especially those who were self-righteous. Some of them would have been relieved. Oh my gosh, I can't believe. But everyone would have been disturbed because nobody saw it coming. How do you know you've encountered grace? Well, the first indication, quite simply, is this. You know you've encountered grace when you're disturbed by grace. I'm ask the band to come up, and as they do, I want to ask just one question to everyone in the room, and then I want to give an invitation, and then we're going to be finished, okay? And I'll pray for us. Here's the question I want to leave us with, just quite simple. For everybody in every place who's in this room, here's my question. How do you view God? Okay, what, what is the picture you have? Some of you are not sure if you believe in God. Okay, if you did believe in God, how would you view him? How do you, ima how do you imagine him to be? 
and, and especially in light of the times that we don't live up to God's standards, which, by the way, the Bible tells us that he's perfect and we're not. So all of us fall short of his standard. So how do you think God interacts with us? How, how do you feel like he, he what, is your, what is your picture of what he's like? For some of you, the, the picture you have maybe is that God is a far-off, distant God. He's aloof. He's uninvolved, disinterested, right? For some of you, the picture that, that you have in, in, in your mind of God is that he's a disappointed God, that he, he sees us, he's reluctant to show grace. He's, he begrudgingly shows grace. He just kind of doesn't want to, but he does it because he has to. Some of you today think, man, God is, God is, God is ashamed of me, right? But listen, let me ask you this question. Do you view God like this? Because when Jesus wants to paint a picture of God, he says, you want to know what God's like? He's like, okay, let me, get, let me give you a picture. Here's a picture. A noble, dignified patriarch who will gird up his honor, expose his shame, run and plow into his son to attack him with hugs and kisses. That's God. That's God. And for some of you, you're like, that does not compute. For some of you, you might even be thinking to yourself, that seems, that seems unorthodox. That seems sacrilegious. That seems excessive. But I'm telling you, that's the point. Because Jesus' story would have shocked and it exposes the grace of God. So how do you view God? Does this picture of God, does it, does it somehow shatter preconceived notions that you have about God? Because if it does, I think you're getting close to experiencing grace and knowing grace. It should shock us and disturb us. Here's my last thing. I want to give us an invitation. For some of you in the room today, as you've been listening to this, maybe for you for the first time, something has happened and you understand grace. And I don't just mean know it, but something inside of you understands it in a way you never have before. And if that's the case, if you have never embraced grace, if you've never done that, maybe today for the first time, embrace it, take it. And you don't need to do anything special. There's not like a seance or a ceremony or ritual. You don't have to sacrifice any small animals. It's just between your heart and God's heart. You just talk to him. And you could just tell him. But for some of you, you're, that, you're the older son. You're the, you're the younger son, right? And you're like, man, I've been running from God. I've been, I've been off doing my thing. And for some of you, as you hear this story, you're like, that's me. And look, if that's you, look, would you just, would you just hear the story? Come home. Come home. Your father, your father isn't gonna meet you with judgment. He's not gonna run to you with vindication in his heart. He's gonna run to you with compassion. He's gonna humble. And the moment you repent, the moment you come to your senses, like it says in this passage, your father is gonna flood your life with grace and he's gonna run to you where you are. Maybe for you, man, come home. Come home. You can do that today. Between your heart and God's heart, just talk to him. Just talk to him. Say, Father, I've been running. Father, I've been trying to define life on my own terms. Father, I've, I've strayed from you. Maybe for you, Father, I've never known you. Turn to him and embrace it. And you can do that this very day. I'd encourage you to do it in this room. Here's the second challenge I want to give or invitation, I guess. For those of you who are in a place right now where, quite honestly, you're, you're like, this is cool, but I, I don't know, man. I'm still investigating the whole thing. Right? I'm not sure what I think about Jesus. I'm still trying to figure it all out. If that's you, that's totally fine. But let me encourage you. In fact, let me dare you. Right? I want to dare you to join us in this series for the next six weeks. Because as I said, if you're investigating Jesus, the best place to start is by talking about the grace of God. And then lastly, for those of us who have experienced grace, 
For those of us who are in awe of the grace of God, disturbed, then what I want to challenge us to do is to sing our hearts out as we get a chance to sing right now out of thankfulness for the grace that God has lavished on us. And we can do that together. Let's pray. Jesus, I just want to say thank you so much for the great love that you've lavished upon us. And Lord, the truth is that we all need this. For the, for the sinners and the tax collectors in our audience, Father, who feel like maybe they've went too far or they, they've, they, they, that you would not accept them because of, their, because of the decisions that they've made, Father. We need to hear this. We need this. Because your grace is huge. It's big. It's marvelous. For the Pharisees, for the teachers of the law in the room who try to define our acceptance by you because of our own righteousness, because of the good things we do, because of how disciplined we are. God, we need this. We need this. Because it's about your grace. It's about your grace. Father, when we get this picture in our mind that you, the God of the universe, humbled yourself, that you, you, you girded up your honor, exposed your shame, and then you did it for our sake, it's unfathomable. But then on top of that, you didn't just give us forgiveness of sins, but you rose from the dead. You conquered the grave. And in so doing, you've allowed us to have an inheritance with you. And so, Father, I pray that this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Father, that we would allow that message to, to, to ring new in our hearts today. For the person who's running from you this morning, and for the person who, who desires to turn to you this morning, I pray that they would come home. They'd come home. Now, Father, I know you're waiting. You're waiting ready to flood their life with grace. And God, uh, for those of us in this room who are still investigating, I pray, Jesus, that you would help us, bring us clarity. Pray you'd reveal yourself to us. Help us to understand grace, not as a concept, but as an experience. And Lord, today we bask in glory in the grace that you've given us in the cross. You've accomplished it for us in the resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name.